Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. We've been coming here uh, to V61 since September, but as all of you know, how difficult it is to work out who's been coming here since the church started and who has literally walked through the doors for the first time five minutes ago, this is hello. Um, Andy and I have hosted a couple of times, but I haven't properly introduced myself. So I was thinking um, how to do that well this morning. And I was thinking it's a little bit like a first date, you know, when you're telling a little bit about yourself and then you hear a little bit back. But it's the kind of the worst first date where I do all the talking and you're made to do all the listening. So I'm really sorry about that. Um, But I was thinking one of my... um, uh, So my sister-in-law has a thing that she likes to do when she's meeting somebody. She asks them, what is the story I need to know about you? in order to understand a little bit about who you are and where you're coming from? And I think that's a great question. So I was thinking to myself, what is the story that you guys need to know about me in order to understand where I'm coming from this morning? Um, And so I want to tell you a story about when I was 20. I've been a Christian for a year, and I found myself in the summer on my first birthday Uh, on a club mission trip to Doncaster. Yes, the glamorous life of a Christian. Um, We were there for a week, uh, based out of a Methodist church in the local um, town, city, town? Doncaster, city, town? City. Uh, City centre. Working with the club guys. So we were doing club mission every evening. So during the day, we slept... Uh, and the church got very confused by us. And then we'd wake up at about noon. And then from noon till five, we would sit in one of our uh, rooms where our beds were, bizarrely. And we would just worship. And we would pray. And we would listen to God. And then we'd get up and have dinner slash breakfast um, with the rest of the church and with another mission team that was working out of there. And then from about seven till nine, we'd worship a bit more and pray a bit more into the evening. And then from nine, we would go out into the clubs, um, praying with people, sharing Jesus, um, bringing salt and light into the club mission. And then 3 a.m., we'd come back, pray and worship a little bit more to thank God for what he'd done during that day, cycle, rinse, repeat. The church hadn't necessarily asked us to be that mission team that week. They had a different team that was working with their communities and their neighborhoods as a short-term mission trip. But because of their location, we um, had been asked to be a bit of a satellite, a bit of a fringe. The church wasn't geared up to deal with um, club clubbers and uh, young people because they were not, but they wanted us in that space. On the last evening, there was a Thanksgiving service for the proper mission team and for us. 
At which point the minister, the church leader, stood up and choking in his voice, he said, thank you to us as the little club mission team. What we hadn't realised was for the umpteen hours that we were praying and worshipping in our little bedroom in the corner of their church, the church members were literally at the door with their ear listening to us. And they were overwhelmed by our approach to who Jesus was and what he was up to. And so with tears in his eyes, this church leader stood up and he said, I've realized that I have forsaken and forgotten my first love. You have reminded me what it is to love Jesus because I have forgotten. And I was 20. I'd been a Christian one year. And I just sat there dumbfounded and a little bit embarrassed because who was I to teach this church leader what it was to remember his first love? Fast forward to me, age 33, and I now have two young girls, one of whom who has not really understood the concept of sleep. And I realized just how far from my first love I had gone. I realized that um, Jesus wasn't even my first love anymore. He barely made it into my top 20. If I remembered I was a Christian once a month, I was doing pretty well. My life had got busy. My life had got hectic. Jesus barely factored in at all. And I remembered back to that church leader, and I realized I have forgotten and forsaken my first love. So for the last five years, I have been on an amazing journey of discipleship, of what it means to seek first the presence of God, to want to dwell in the face of Christ, to know him more deeply, more fully, to become more Christ-like in my journey. And if you want to know anything about me, that is my passion because I don't know Jesus as well as I could, should, and desperately want to. He isn't always my first love, and sometimes he doesn't make it to my top 20, but I want to. I want to be able to dwell in the presence of God and bring my worship, my hopes, my dreams, my struggles, my sufferings to the foot of the cross. So if I'm gonna tell you anything today, that is what I wanna share with you, because Jesus, loves you first and fully. And because he loves you, he welcomes you into relationship with him. So that's my story. And at some point, I would love to meet any and all of you and have you tell me what is the story that I need to know about you to know you more fully. But that is us for today. Okay, to the sermon. This season, we are looking at um, the seven I am statements found in the book of John. Uh, this is statement number three. We have had two already. We've had I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. And I get the great old statement, I am the gate. Yep, really, really easy, really obvious, winning. Um, but before we go too much into what this is about and what on earth Jesus is talking about in John 10, 
I want to tell you something about stories. If you hadn't got it already, I like stories. I'm the director of comms at the Evangelical Alliance. You met my boss last week, um, Steve. Um, and I love stories. I love telling stories, hearing stories, sharing stories. And I think our lives ultimately are stories. But what one thing you do need to know is how you start a story and how you end a story affects the story that you're telling. So for me, it's really important that when we talk about what is going on in the Bible, we understand how that story starts and how that story ends in order to understand what's going on in the middle. If you take sin out of the Bible, you know, all the bad stuff, all the rubbish, all the screw-ups, all the mess-ups, all the sin, the destruction, the mistakes, the shame, the guilt, the hiding, everything else, you still have a story. It's a very short story. It's four chapters. You start in Genesis 1 and 2, and you end in Revelation 21 and 22, the beginning and the end. In Genesis 1, we meet God the creator and author of all things. And in him and through him, all things are good. And he makes man in his likeness, and we are very good. We are created to be in a relationship with him, and we find ourselves in a garden. We get to dwell and bask in the presence of God. Adam, the first man, walks with God in the cool of the evening. We are with God, and it is good. Fast forward to Revelation 21 and 22, we move from a garden to a city. There is a progression, there is a development. We move from two people, Adam and Eve, through a family, into a people, into the whole world redeemed. And in that space, where there is no um, chaos, there is no pain, there is no suffering, God dwells fully with his people. And he invites people to dwell fully with him. How we start the story, understand that it is good and that we're built for relationship with God. How we end the story, knowing that there is hope, there is a kingdom, a life in all its fullness available to us, helps us understand what is going on in this time and in this place. That what we anticipate is going to come true and that we get to taste the first fruits of it today. Does that make sense? Okay. So, with that parked in the back of your mind, we are in John 10. Now, John. John is one of the disciples of Jesus. Um, he uh, doesn't name himself in this book, but he is the one that Jesus loves. So, John has an agenda with his uh, gospel, with the stories and the things that he is writing. And he is the master at layers of meaning. There are numbers, there are hints, there are clues. He's an ambiguous writer. He wants you to get to the thing behind the thing. He wants you to understand what's truly going on so that we don't lean in too much with assumption and expectation. One of my favorite things, so we have the seven I am statements, which is pointing to the idea that Jesus is God, I am, um, Yahweh, the name of God that God gives to Moses, his prophet in Exodus, right at the beginning of the story of Israel. Um, Jesus is adopting that name in John, and we have it seven times. We also have seven signs 
another indication that God is, Jesus isn't just who he says he is, but Jesus is who he is because of what he does. Both those sevens are a sign of completion, but also a sign of creation. Back to the beginning of the story, um, Genesis 1, the seven days of creation, God making everything good and new. So that by the time of the end of John, when Mary meets a gardener on the first of a day of a new week, we are told that in the midst of this creation, a new creation has started. John is the master at weaving meaning under everything we are reading. So, there are a lot of things going on in John 10, is basically what I'm trying to say. Um, I could honestly do a whole day and then still have stuff to cover, so we're not going to go through it all. Um, but what I do want to say is that when you read John 10, it's not meant to be obvious what Jesus is talking about. Um, to the extent that later on in John 10, uh, some people go up to Jesus in the temple and just say, are you the Messiah? Would you please tell us plainly? In other words, they don't get what Jesus is saying. So, why? Because most of us have assumptions and things in our head and we assume that we know what the person is talking about before they finished speaking. Um, for example, how many of you have seen a radio presenter or a DJ or somebody that you've only heard the voice of and you see their face and go, that does not match what I had in my head? Have you ever talked at cross-purposes with somebody and assumed that you two knew exactly what was being said only to discover that you were completely missing the point? Married couples look at each other and nod. Um, my kids um, are five and seven. And uh, for a year, we lived in the south of France, suffering for Jesus, um, planting, uh, helping a church plant. Um, it was a real struggle. The main reason why I'm telling this story is just to brag, so hey. Um, we had a swimming pool in our garden. <laughs> I know, suffering. Um, so the kids grew up. It, that's their memory of, of swimming. They had a swimming pool in the garden. So when we moved back to London and our youngest looks out of her bedroom window and goes, mummy, where's the swimming pool? We just go, oh, welcome to London. Let's uh, adjust those expectations. But also, um, when we go and stay at my in-laws at the grandparents, they live down in Devon, and they don't have a swimming pool in their garden, but they might as well because their community swimming pool backs onto their garden wall. So the kids just go over and play in this outdoor swimming pool all the time. But what that meant was that in February, when we took them for their first proper swimming lessons in our local sports centre, and I asked them, how was it? Uh, after, the, after the lessons, they turned around and said, we never expected it to be inside. I know. We have not raised British kids. I feel like I, I'm going to have to pay for a lifetime of therapy when all of their expectations get ruined as they grow older. But in their heads, swimming pools were outside. And they just hadn't realized that you would put a roof over it. In other words, what we have in our head and the expectations that we enter into a conversation or into reality with can sometimes be at opposition with what is actually really going on. 
So Jesus doesn't walk up to people and say, hi, I'm God, nice to meet you. Because he knows it in their heads, they think they know what that means. In other words, he talks behind that concept to help people not only understand that he is God, but they understand who that means God is. So, John 10. Uh, If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, John is the fourth of the Gospels, so it's about the last quarter of a Bible. If you've got an app, just type it in. Or if you've got very good eyesight, you can read it on a screen. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They'll never follow a stranger because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Those who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So, there is a lot going on here. In John 10, we have two I am statements. We have the I am the gate. Some of your versions will have door. And then uh, next week, we're going to be looking at I am the good shepherd. So we're going to park some of the sheep stuff for next week and go on to the really obvious and clear stuff about God being a gate. Um, So that's our concentration today. So why is Jesus claiming to be a gate. Well, like I said, um, some of you will have gate in your translation. Some of you will know the idea that I am the door. Ultimately, what is the word here is being used is threshold. It's this idea that Jesus is saying, I am the entrance way. I am the point of crossover from the reality that you live in now to the reality that is coming or to the reality that you were always supposed to have. But what is it that we're entering and why? Well, fun times. Let's turn over to Chronicles. Chronicles, Old Testament. It's a history book. There are two parts, Chronicles 1, Chronicles 2, well, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. Um, And in it, it tells you the history of the um, Israelite people, all the way from Adam up to King Cyrus, obviously. And it's a little bit repetitive to what's gone on in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, but it helps you fill in the story of Israel. Um, What this chapter, if you can jump ahead for me to 1 Chronicles 9, we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 27. It's talking a little bit about priests. Um, I don't know about you, 
But depending on what you have in your head when you hear the word priest, I've messed up Richard, I'm really sorry. Um, When you hear in the word priest, you might think of a generic white old guy, maybe like this one. Um, You might think of a specific old white guy, maybe like that one. Um, You might have, um, if you're slightly older in my generation or above, when you think of the word priest, you might think of this one. Um, And if you're a bit more modern, you might think of that one. Yeah, yeah, nailed it. Um, When we hear the word priest, um, what you hear in your head and what Jesus is talking about are different things. Jesus is, um, uh, the, the idea of the temple, the idea of priesthood in the uh, Jewish history is more closely aligned the idea of a mediator or maybe even a bridge. So the golden gate bridge was my little nod to I am the gate, if you get what. Okay, just me. Um, We started in a garden where we could enter the dwelling place of God. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of of knowledge of good and evil, we left the dwelling place of God. No longer did we reside in the presence of God. It had to be a mediated relationship. There was a separation. Sin had come to steal, kill, and destroy Priests in the temple system in uh, the Jewish history were the mediators. They were the ones who petitioned on the behalf of the people and heard from God and passed those messages on. It was the conduit to which we could enter God's presence. So in Chronicles, in 9, we have this idea of the Levites um, being commissioned for different priestly roles. And this role is the role of the gatekeeper. They guarded the entranceway to the temple of the dwelling of the Lord. They were the ones who made sure that nobody could enter unless they were clean. They were the ones who blocked the way for robbers to come and steal the precious artifacts that were part of their worship. They locked the gates at night. So this, um, when Jesus in, t- in John 10 is describing himself as the gate and the gatekeeper, he's not just calling himself a priest as somebody who just prays and petitions, but he's also the way in which you can enter into fully into the relationship, into the presence of God. When we go back to John 10... We see that this idea that the special function of the gatekeeper is attached to this idea of safety and security. They're guarding the presence of God. They're guarding the people when they are with God and in his dwelling place. Uh, Back into first century Palestine, when Jesus is talking, the idea of a gatekeeper for sheep is that they would lay down in the gap overnight and make sure that the predators couldn't come in and take the sheep, steal, kill, destroy. 
So they would lay down and block the entranceway to protect those within the pen. Jesus is saying here, and John is reminding us, that Jesus isn't just any gatekeeper. Jesus isn't just any priest, because he doesn't just risk his life. He laid it down. He went to the cross to die for us so that the wages of sin and death no longer prevent us from entering into the dwelling place of God, no longer prevent us from being into God's presence. He died. He didn't just risk, he sacrificed. But three days later, he rose again so that he can sit in the presence of the Father day and night petitioning and mediating on our behalf and preparing a place for us in his kingdom. Jesus is more than a priest. Through him, we can enter the dwelling of God, not just anticipate it in the future, but here and now. My mother-in-law is a ridiculously talented woman, She is um, a textile artist um, and is responsible for producing the biggest piece of textile art ever produced by a single artist. She did 14 panels about about the size from the door frame to the banner, roughly, uh, depicting scenes from Revelation, like you do obviously, Um, and they tour around cathedrals. But the final piece is um, Revelation 21 and 22. Um, I just want to show it to you. This is the new temple where the gates aren't locked and Jesus is the way through which we can enter into the city. So I want you to simply settle back and close your eyes. Or maybe you might want to focus on that artwork. But I want to read you the passage from Revelation 21. And know that when Jesus says that I am the gate, you can find pasture, you can come, and you can go, and you can find life in all its fullness. John, the same writer, writes this passage right at the end of his life when he is a prisoner on an island and he is given a glimpse of what Jesus means and what that is going to look like and what that does look like in reality today. So Revelation 21. I saw heaven and earth new created. Gone the first heaven, gone the first earth, gone the sea. I saw holy Jerusalem new created, descending resplendent out of heaven, as ready for God as a bride for her husband. I heard a voice thunder from the throne, look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women, various people. He's their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. Death is gone for good. Tears gone, crying gone, pain gone, all the first order of things are gone. The enthroned continued, look, I make everything new. Write it down, every word dependable and accurate. 
Then he said, it's happened. I'm the beginning and the end. The water of life I give freely to the thirsty. Conquerors inherit all of this. I will be God to them. They will be sons and daughters to me. But the rest, the feckless and the faithless, degenerates, murderers, sex peddlers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, for them is the lake of fire, brimstone, and second death. Subtle. One of the seven angels who was carrying the bowl filled with the seven final disasters spoke to me, come here, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he took me away in the spirit to an enormous high mountain and showed me Jerusalem descending from heaven from God, resplendent in the bright glory of God. The city shimmered like a precious gem light-filled, pulsing light. She had a wall majestic and high with seven gates. At each gate stood an angel, and on those angels were inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three gates on the west. The wall was set on 12 foundations, the name of the 12 apostles of the, of the Lamb inscribed on them. The angel speaking with me had a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out in a perfect square. He measured the city with a measuring stick. The walls were jasper, the color of glory, and the city was pure gold, translucent like glass. The foundations of the city walls were garnished with every precious gem imaginable. The first foundation, jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, crystallite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, crestopase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst, the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate a single pearl. The main, city, the main street of the city was pure gold, translucent like glass, but there was no sign of a temple. For the Lord God, the sovereign strong, and the lamb are the temple. The city doesn't need sun or moon for light. God's glory is its light. The temple, its lamp, the lamb, its lamp. The nations will walk in its light, and earth's kings will bring in their splendor. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there won't be any night. They'll bring the glory and the honor of the nations into the city. Nothing dirty or defiled will get into the city, and no one who defiles or deceives, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will get in. Then the angel showed me the water of life river, crystal bright. It flowed from the throne of God and the Lamb right down the middle of the street. The tree of life was planted on each side of the river, producing 12 kinds of fruit, a ripe fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Never again will anything be cursed. The throne of God and the lamb at the center, his servants will offer God worship. They will look on his face, their foreheads mirroring God. Never again will there be any night no one will need lamplight or sunlight. The shining of God, the master, is all the light 
anyone needs, and they will reign with him age after age after age. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is your safety and security. And he, the spirit and the bride, are inviting you to come. So today, what do you need in this city? Do you need order instead of chaos? Do you need healing from the fruit of the tree? Do you need hope that the cursed things will pass away? Or do you simply need to live in the dwelling place of the Lord? I'd like to invite the band to come up. And I'd like you to think about whether or not you need to come. If you are tired and weary, Jesus invites you to come. If you are thirsty and need refreshment, Jesus invites you to come. If you don't know Jesus, but know that in him have the words of eternal life, I invite you to come. If you want prayer, as the band plays and as we worship, I just invite you to come and stand and someone will come and pray with you. If you just want to spend some time with Jesus, then I invite you to come to the cross. Maybe just kneel with him. Maybe just uh, spend some time. There's even postcards of the um, picture if you just want to use that to meditate or take it back to your seat. But the invitation is simple. Jesus is the gate. He is the God. And he does make his running place with you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.